In his book, Evangelical Catholicism, papal biographer George Weigel argues that a new era of Catholicism is upon us, an era that brings with it new demands for both the Catholic clergy and laity. Join us today as we unpack the nature, origins, and the demands of this new era with George Weigel, the author of Evangelical Catholicism. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And uh, today we're talking about evangelical Catholicism. And joined here in our studios with our regular panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization, again here at Franciscan University. And our very special guest today is George Weigel, no stranger to DWTN, uh, the, uh, your senior faculty at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You've written over 19 books, probably the, one of the famous ones, the biography of uh, John Paul. Uh, but today we're, uh, we're talking about uh, evangelical Catholicism, deep reform in the 21st century church. Uh, but you're a, a, a Vatican analyst with uh, NBC, and you are the, uh, you and your wife are the uh, uh, parents of three children and one grandchild. So welcome to the program. Thanks, Mike. Good to be back here. It is, it is always a pleasure to have you on campus. Uh, I heard it was a great, uh, great turnout with the students and a, a lively discussion uh, on the topic that we're going to be talking about today. So uh, if you can help us dive a little deeper, what do you mean when you talk about evangelical Catholicism? I mean the Church of the New Evangelization, which is a phrase that John Paul II began deploying in 1992. Uh, I believe. Uh, if you want to get people excited about a, a new vision of Catholic possibility for the 21st century and the third millennium, you don't call a book the new evangelization. <laughs> right. yes. yeah. Evangelical Catholicism is challenging, it's surprising. The adjective evangelical is usually applied to Protestantism. It's the same Catholic Church, okay. but it's a church moving into a new phase of its life as the Church of the Fathers gave birth to and gave way to medieval Christendom. Mm. That gave birth to and gave way to Counter-Reformation Catholicism. So that mode of being Catholic, which okay. had a pretty good run for right. 500 years, which many of us were formed when we were young, is now giving way as, it gave, as it's giving birth to the Church of the New Evangelization, in which each one of us is called to own our baptism yeah. as a commission to be a missionary disciple. Mm. Every yeah. territory is mission territory. Every Catholic is an evangelical missionary, a witness to Christ, who must measure the quality of his or her discipleship by how they are offering what Pope Benedict used to call friendship with Jesus Christ right. to others. Yeah. Uh, George, I was really struck by that datum uh, that you mm. uh, declared last night about baptism, mm. that really it's more important than your birth. And yet most people don't remember uh, what that date is. And yet it is the most important event 
in the life of a Christian. Um, mm. could, could you tell me why that is? I think the example that brought this home to me, as I mentioned in my lecture last evening, uh, was a combination of meeting evangelical Protestants who would introduce themselves by saying, I'm John Smith and I was born again on yeah. such and such a date. Yeah. And my saying a little flippantly in response, I'm George Weigel and I was born again on April 29th, 1951, at which point I was precisely 12 days old. <laughs> <laughs> but then, yeah. then thinking about all that, when I was writing the biography of John Paul II, the first volume, Witness to Hope, and remembering that the first thing he did when he went into his old parish church on his mm -hmm. first trip back to Poland as Pope was to go straight to the baptismal font and venerate it yeah. and kiss it. That was his signal that he knew that was the most important day of his life yes. uh, because that was the day he was incorporated into Christ. Mm -hmm. He became a member of a communion of disciples and mission. And that's the foundation of everything else. That's the foundation of his priestly vocation, his Episcopal consecration, his papal ministry. It all goes back to baptism. And that's true of each of us. Yeah. That's yeah. true of each of us. And we don't take that seriously. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and in a certain sense, this is a mission that's ever old, but, but, but ever new. Uh, you know, that, you, that you're really being called into something that, that is very ancient, but, you're, but it's a new evangelization. Well, and, they, the, curiously, he uses that phrase, new evangelization, for the first time back in 79, when he was at Nova Huda. Hmm. Uh, the new steelworks outside of Krakow, right. and uh, he recognized the ravages of the Nazis and the, and the Soviets, and recognized the need to re-evangelize those who had become somewhat secularized. And then he used it for the second time in 83, when he spoke in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, to the bishops. And that's where he clarified what he meant, that the new evangelization isn't implying that the church has stopped evangelizing and is starting up again. The new evangelization is re-evangelizing the dechristianized. In effect, we need to evangelize the baptized and not just baptize those who have been evangelized and catechized. And I think what this shows us is exactly what you were just saying, that baptism is the foundation. It's the font of spiritual life. And yet it doesn't imply what evangelicals usually think. That is, conversion is over and done in the past. It's what happened on that day. No, regeneration occurs when baptism. I, I am reborn as a child in the family of God. But at the same time, you've got to grow up. And that means that conversion for Catholics is ongoing. It's lifelong. It's ever deepening, and it's never easy. And especially when you have forces of secularization, whether it's consumerism or communism, he recognized it, and Pope Benedict and Pope Francis do too. And I think that's the key to seeing why evangelical Catholic is not oxymoronic, but virtually redundant. Yeah, well, and, and before we go too, too deep into this, I, you, you paint a really beautiful historical picture, you know, kind of looking at the eras of the church and you kind of lay out where we're at, at different phases. And you've already kind of touched on this, but you know, what we have, many of us have known in growing up, the Baltimore Catechism, you know, the whole, the whole counter-reformation uh, phase or era in the church, but, but it is something new, you know, that there is, every church has a different um, milieu that we're in, a different challenge, a different conflict, different struggle, and our conflict is different than the era in the past. This is what's different today. Uh, 60 years ago, as recently as 60 years ago, the faith could be transmitted almost by osmosis. If you lived, if you grew up in a very Catholic environment like I did in Baltimore in the 50s and early 60s, it was in the air. 
and the, the surrounding culture helped our parents, our grandparents, the sisters, the priests, the brothers, whatever, transmit the faith to us. That is completely gone now. And it's not a case that the air has become neutral. The air has become toxic. It's become anti-biblical. It's sending counter signals to the truth about human beings that we know by revelation and reason. So, in that kind of situation, you can't count on the external environment. The church has to recover its sense of itself as a missionary enterprise, and the missions are not some weird places you read about in National Geographic. The right. missions yeah. are your kitchen table, your neighborhood yeah. association, your business, your life as a consumer, your life as a citizen. That's all mission territory. That's right. Yeah. And I think the, uh, Pope Francis gets this completely uh, when he talks about a church in permanent mission. Yeah. Uh, kept Catholicism, either in the European sense of legally established churches, or the Latin American sense of culturally established churches, that just doesn't exist anymore. Right. Forty years from now, no one is going to be able to really say, I am a Catholic because my grandmother was born in Guadalajara, right. or Warsaw, right. or Dublin, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. It's going to have to be intentional. Yeah, it, that doesn't carry the freight anymore. Yeah. And it seems to me that the first installment in this, this campaign to re-evangelize a world that has become increasingly de-Christianized is to get people to recover the meaning of their baptism. Mm -hmm. What happened? What was the impact of that event, that collision between you and God? That's right. You know, the eruption of grace into nature. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? There's nothing natural about it. it it's not automatic. It's not inherited. You have to take ownership of it. I, I have a book uh, called Born Catholics that came out around the time you were born. And it's filled with wonderful stories about cradle Catholics. Some of my heroes uh, are in there. And yet, that's a misnomer. You're not a born Catholic. You have to become one. I mean, Pope Benedict describes that event as the final mutation in the evolution of the human species. We need to recapture, I think, the sense, yeah. the explosiveness of that event. We've lost sight of it. And, and ultimately, what is that sacrament? It, when most of us are baptized as children, and it's an action of our parents, it's an action, first and foremost, by God uh, on our lives, sure. that He came to us, that He encountered us, and as adults, we need to remember and rekindle that encounter. You know, that's a great image, Regis. I, I hadn't thought of that before, the final mutation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we yeah. can say to the Richard Dawkinses of this world, the new atheist, we will see you and raise you. Right. We will <laughs> raise see you and raise you. We're going to raise the ante as far as you can raise it. Yeah, yeah. Because we talk about theosis, divinization. Right. What are you talking about? You're talking about, you know, sentient mud. But the thing about baptism that I really also appreciate is the fact that it is body forming, not just for individuals, yeah. but it forms the mystical body right. by inserting, by incorporating quite literally and dramatically individuals, whether they're infants or whether they're adult converts. And, and what emerges is a social organism, a sacramental organism. You know, and as Rodney Stark points out, you cite Rodney Stark, and I have appreciated his work for years. You know, 
Christianity didn't spread because Constantine legalized it. Constantine legalized it because of how it had spread. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, when you look at European countries that were, you know, the Catholic faith was legally instituted. Well, that's not why they were Catholic. That's why they legally instituted the religion. And I think we have to recognize the evangelical forms, but at the same time do what you just said. The sacrament of baptism and just as much or more, the Eucharist and all the others too, this is what implants within us a divine life that doesn't just take us out of the human, it plants us right back into it in a way, again, that goes far beyond what Dawkins could possibly imagine. But it would also then create social forms and culture that are never reducible to politics, although there will be political expressions of this. But it's not a kind of theocratic vision. It has much more to do with that vital union that individuals have in this mystical body that is more than a metaphor. It is more abiding as metaphysical reality goes than any political order. And I think if we recognize that, we're already on the road to that kind of deep reform. You know, it, it would be instructive, I think, to inquire into the mindset of atheists and ask them, why do you resist this notion of a final mutation? What, what, what prevents you from embracing it? It could be an absence of the virtue of magnanimity. They're not interested in greatness. You can't get any greater than this. It's a leap right <laughs> off the true. page. You it's know, an ontological transformation. What, what's interesting to me in the... Christianity and science debates of the past 200 years is how the debate partners have shifted. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the beginning of the modern scientific revolution, Copernicus, Galileo, and whatnot, it was the hard sciences that were, that were pressing a naturalist agenda. Yeah. Now, the hard sciences are our conversation partners. That's right. Because they're physics, chemistry, astrophysics, astronomy, yeah. cosmology, they're all bumping up against limits that they know their methodology can't explain. Yeah. It's the life sciences people, right. yeah. biology, genetics, uh, right. evolutionary biology, yeah. Yeah. guys like Dawkins, who are the problem. And why they want to believe that we are accidentally congealed stardust right. seems yeah. to me yeah. incomprehensible. Yeah. But one hopes that out of the hard sciences, someone told me several years ago that the single largest growing subsection of the American Physics Society, the Professional Association of Physicists, is the Christian Physics really? Association. Really? I hope that's still true, but anyway, the terms of this have right, shifted. Right, yeah. um, now, one other thing we should mention quickly is, you know, the Promethean character, right. the Promethean temptation in the life sciences, the immortality project, yeah. as Leon Cass, a friend of many of us here, uh, has described it. I mean, these people want to play God even though they deny the existence of God. Right, right. And that's another problem. But the hard science people are now far more interesting to talk to about these matters. Right. It, it's interesting that Leo, Leon Cast would, would describe the age in which we are, uh, we are living as a post-human world. Yeah. Because when you bring down God, you really imperil man. Right. Uh, you do violence to man. I mean, that's an insight that's central uh, to Catholic theology yeah. and human experience. And I want to pick up on evangelical Catholicism and um, 
Stay with us in the next segment as we go into more of the reforms and the renewal that's being called for in evangelical Catholicism. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. John Paul II tells us to not be afraid to go out into the streets um, and to preach the, to preach the gospel just like the apostles did in the early church. Not be afraid to go out into the streets and the public places and uh, to proclaim Christ. Uh, to strike up conversations and ask people if they know Jesus Christ, if they have had a personal encounter. Because uh, usually the conversation turns to, oh, what do you do for a living? And I tell them I'm studying theology at Franciscan University. And they usually ask, oh, what are you going to do with that? And it gives me this opportunity to share with them uh, what Jesus Christ is doing in my life and how he's affected me in a personal way. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking today with author and scholar uh, George Weigel about his book, Evangelical Catholicism. Um, so George, as, as we begin to dive a little deeper into what you're calling Evangelical Catholicism, there's some demands uh, that are being placed upon the church for reform. So let's start at the top, if you will. <laughs> let's start with the bishops. What, what does Evangelical Catholicism demand or uh, put, as a, uh, put as a challenge, if you will? Uh, Let's begin by making sure we understand what authentic Catholic reform is. Yes. Authentic Catholic reform is not starting from scratch. Right. It's not inventing things over again. Christ gave the church a constitution in the British sense of the term, not the American sense of the term. And all genuine Catholic reform is a reform. Right. It's a reaching back to the form mm -hmm. that Christ gave. The original church. foundations. So what I'm suggesting in the chapter on the reform of the Episcopate here is that that reform, that reaching back and retrieving and renewing uh, something from the original structure, if you will, of the church, involves bishops rediscovering their vocation as primarily evangelists. That's it. Mm -hmm. We now mm -hmm. think and have thought in the institutional maintenance Catholicism of the Counter-Reformation, bishops are CEOs, bishops right. are managers, yeah. bishops are administrators. There's a dimension to that that is an irreducible part of the Episcopal office. Right. When it takes over the office, when the bishop spends 80% of his time in meetings, yes. he's not doing that for which he was ordained. Now, this requires rethinking the criteria by which bishops are chosen. Mm. Preaching skill, evangelical capacity, the capacity to be a compelling witness who invites others into the church, a pastor who has 50 or 60 adult baptisms or receptions into full communion at the Easter Vigil every year, year after year after year, that's yeah. the kind of bishop yeah. you want right. in the church. Right. The bishop can hire people to run things right. for him. Right. 
And in fact, that's something we should think about in terms of the future of the diaconate, which would be a reaching back to the original form. Um, but the irreducible function of the bishop is teaching and sanctifying, yeah. and those have to go first. You have a, a great quote, I mean, you're referencing an, um, uh, a journalist, a French journalist, about just even when, when Pope John Paul, in, in the early days of his pontificate, uh, it almost harkens to that idea where he wasn't, this wasn't a pope from Poland, uh, but a pope from Galilee, yeah. you know, the sense oh, that we're drawing yeah. back uh, yeah. to that great image of what, what was the fervor of that encounter with Christ, being called to be true fishers of men. Well, and if, as you remember, uh, the diaconate emerges in the church when the Twelve, whom we think of as the origins of the College of Bishops, are tired of doing housekeeping, <laughs> are tired of being administrators and sorting out practical problems. No, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word, yeah. and that seems to me to be a pretty good model for today. And Wojtyla, in his years as Archbishop of Krakow, John Paul II, uh, provides a pretty good template for how to do that. Whenever a problem came up that had to be addressed, he would get his advisors around him, and the two questions they would, uh, he would pose were, first, what is the truth of the gospel that sheds light on this problem? Second question is, who can we get <laughs> or who can we train to help? Yeah. So, that seems to me not a bad way to do <laughs> right. pastoral right. planning. Yeah. If, if you're looking for a guy, uh, uh, you know, you're grooming him to become a bishop and you need to know that he can evangelize, it, it, it seems to me that what's presupposed here is that he has himself already been evangelized. Right. He's right. soaked in the church's sacramental That's life. True. He's intensely in love with Christ. That's right. And he wants to share uh, this, this event with everybody. Mm. You know, this new vision, which is old, you know, for the bishop as being an evangelizer, as being a successor to the apostles, so to be like the apostles. I mean, this goes back, as you point out, you know, to the council and, beyond, and before. I mean, Pius XII, in so many ways, was beginning to sow the seeds. But Paul VI also, I mean, we forget the fact that no pope had made apostolic journeys to other continents until Paul VI. Yeah. You know, from 1964 to 1970, he made a number of these that are now forgotten because of how they were eclipsed by St. John Paul, right. who you know, makes over a hundred apostolic journeys and you know, practically a million kilometers. He really becomes the missionary in chief, as some people say. You know? And that, I think, is a challenge because he's not just the pope, he's the bishop of Rome. And suddenly you can see while curial reform is a necessity, you don't want the administrative tail to kind of wag the missionary dog. You know, you're going to have the proper reform when you have the proper priorities in place. And so if you have bishops starting from Rome all the way down to Peoria who are evangelizing, then I think the order, the organization is going to redo itself to advance that principal mission. And I think John Paul and Benedict and you know, Francis give us cause for hope, but so much more is still needed. Yeah. Now, I use a somewhat dramatic image in, in the first part of the book when I say, imagine a diocese that has been destroyed mm -hmm. by scandal, financial ruin, and whatnot. If you have the local bishop 
celebrating his daily mass and then sitting in the park and saying to passers-by, I'm Bishop John, may I tell you about Jesus Christ? Right. Yeah. You have got the essential structure <laughs> and functions of right. the church, That's right. even amidst what right. looks like complete catastrophe. Right. right. Complete catastrophe. Yeah. It's a very different view, though, uh, than the media, the culture, and even some of us Catholics want to see. And they, well, institutions we are important. I mean, right. I don't That's mean right. the institutions yeah. are, are, are unimportant. They're a means to an end. They're right. the platform. Right. They're the, think of them as the launch pad. They're not the rocket. They're the <laughs> launch pad. Right. And just as you say correctly, Scott, you don't want the institutional tail wagging the missionary dog. You don't want the institutional tail impeding the missionary that's right. dog. Right. 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 So that's the whole idea of, of curial reform or diocesan structural reform or parish reform in this book is how do we turn these platforms into launch pads. Right. Right. And is, right. it, is it similar then as we look at the priesthood or consecrated life in, in the challenges or the, the opportunities or demands of the uh, evangelical Catholicism? Well, for, here's, here's one thing on, on the reform of the priesthood, which I think is well underway. Yeah. Uh, seminaries in the United States are in the best shape they've been in in 40 years. Um, but our recruitment still needs some refinement, I mm -hmm. think. We are stu still too heavily dependent on batteries of psychological tests. Right, yeah. No, the first question to be asked to a young man is, how are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Right, yeah. The second question is, how many people have you invited <laughs> into that communion of, of, of disciples and mission? Yeah. Then we can get to the Myers-Briggs and all that <laughs> other stuff, but let's get that straight first. Right. And if, if the young man cannot tell you why and how he is a disciple, how he has invited others into this. You don't toss him out the door. You invite him how to learn. To be a disciple. To be a disciple right. and to be a missionary disciple and then say, you know, come, let's stay in touch yes. and we'll go on from there. Because that's what you're going to have to do. If you're thinking of the Catholic priesthood in the United States in the 21st century, as a kind of safe, secure career path. <laughs> yeah. Forget it. I mean, it's all, it's going to be all trial and yeah, challenge, yeah, right. some joy, <laughs> but you're going to have a, this is a tough road to hoe. Well, I think m much of the post-conciliar mess traces back to these awful models of the church as management, machinery, when in the end it's all reducible to Jesus. You know, whom Balthazar describes as the ineffable poverty of divine, incarnate, crucified love. You need to ask the candidate, have you fallen hopelessly in love with Christ? And would you like to infect others with this same uh, eros, this same passion? And if the answer is yes, then I'd make him a bishop. <laughs> you know, the, the, the residual effects of that sort of problem, as you described it, I mean, it, when, when, when our two oldest sons sat down with the vocations officer, uh, the director for our diocese, years ago, so no one can identify who it is. <laughs> you know, they, he was, they were basically told, you got a good choice for a career because it's cushy and it's comfortable job security, vacations, golf. They couldn't leave quick enough, you know? They left so quickly. And then one of our sons is in seminary right now. And years later, when he sat down, the question was, what does it mean to you to follow Jesus Christ? Right. That's and how what, are you, yeah, wow. what are you willing to give up? 
wow. when he says, follow me. And, that's and then, the, you know, all, uh, the, all the battery, you know, the exams, those things follow. And it's a he, simple recipe. Yeah. Well, it's just a readjustment, but it's, it might seem subtle or, or small, but it's, ma it's, it's massive. It gets back to what we were talking about a moment ago. Have you owned the meaning of your baptism in terms of friendship with the Lord right. and incorporation into his body experienced and lived out sacramentally. Well, that, that's what you want to know. And, and just tipping from that, so then when we look at our liturgical life of the church, right. what, what does evangelical Catholicism speak to possible reform within our liturgical life? It asks us to own the dignity of our baptism so that which equips us through the grace of, of the Holy Spirit conferred in the sacrament to offer right worship. Mm. And if you think of yourself that way, if you think of the priesthood of the baptized that way, the common priesthood, then that rather automatically leads to a more dignified, noble celebration of the liturgy. There are other forms of Christian liturgical action or paraliturgical action which can be more informal, if you like. Yeah. But the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, particularly on Sunday, ought to have a massive dignity about it mm -hmm. as an expression of the great gift that has been given us and our recognition of that. I lived in a wonderful parish in suburban Washington for 30 years. Uh, we have very fine liturgy. But I'm now one of five men who regularly wears this on Sunday morning. Right. Um, this is not recreational activity. <laughs> right. This is not recreational. And, and I think we need to recover a sense, even in something as simple but symbolically important, we're people of stuff, yeah. as how we dress That's right. for Mass, That's so true. To, as an expression of that priestly dignity that we're bringing to the yeah. sacrament. Well, I mean, we live in the midst of a grunge culture where all of those uh, hieratic distinctions have collapsed. I mean, people just wear whatever they damn well please anywhere. There are no distinctions, no gradations. Uh, and, and, you know, wearing a hat when they go into a restaurant. Uh, uh, I, I think Tony Soprano in one of those episodes <laughs> goes into a restaurant like that and he sees a guy wearing his hat and he very nearly cuts his head off. He's so infuriated. I mean, maybe we don't need to do that, but I think a certain... I don't think so at all. Yeah, a certain ambiance of, of formality, stateliness, solemnity is people in order. People leave yeah, early, people come late. Look, they're obviously practical issues, small children, you know, whatever. Somebody gets a little sick. But as a normal rule, if, if you think it's important, you're going to be on time for it, you're going to stay for the whole thing, right. and you're going to present yourself appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to conduct yourself appropriately at... And it's, it's entirely possible. I mean, I've been through three kids at Mass, yeah. and now, now a grandson at Mass. You can do it if you try. But, and they also have to be raised in that way. So sure. that the kids from a very early age see this is what we do, this is part of our life, and that they have to have that encounter and understanding of their baptism from a very early age yeah, yeah. to make it all work. Uh, that's great. Uh, stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. It doesn't take much to see that the modern world is really in need of hope. 
And that's why I think Pope Francis is causing such a stir and getting everyone's attention is because he is a radical witness to hope and joy and peace in a world that has very little of any of those. And I think that's one of the most foundational things about evangelization is just the witness of a person's life as something that's attractive and something that makes people stop and think. And I think that's why Pope Francis is so effective right now and he's such a great leader and he's really catching the whole world's attention. I am a communication arts major, the president of film club, and an editor for Franciscan University Presents. It's really great to be able to work on Franciscan University Presents because it is a national television show on EWTN, and in a lot of other schools you're not going to have that kind of ability to put that on a resume. When I graduate, I know that I'm going to, to be firm in sticking with my faith and you know going to daily mass and a frequent confession and things like that, because instead of just learning with my mind or just focusing on schoolwork, I, I actually you know, can grow with my whole person. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University. Uh, this, this program is being taped right here in a communication arts studio here at Franciscan University. Uh, our students are operating the camera and the equipment. Our regular panelists are faculty here at Franciscan University. Uh, we've been talking today with George Weigel about evangelical Catholicism. We've talked about the bishops, we've talked about the priests and, and consecrated. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the laity. What, what does this new era in the church mean for the laity? It means that every lay Catholic has to be biblically literate hmm. so that we can learn to see the world through biblical lenses and thus get some reality contact in a world that's increasingly losing reality contact. Yes. It means lifelong catechesis. Yeah. Religion class is never over. Yeah. Yeah. Kids sometimes say after confirmation, well, religion class is over. No, religion class is never right. over. It means a sacramentally enriched lay life, yes. regular contact with the Lord in the Holy Eucharist, not simply on Sunday, but during the week, uh, a more intensified life of prayer, using tools like Magnificat or the Breviary or, or whatever. Uh, it means a recovery of the graces of the Sacrament of Reconciliation. We bring to the Lord in confession all of the problems of being missionary disciples, mm. or in this case, the, the problems of not being the missionary disciples, we were baptized to be, and we receive through uh, the action of the priest and the person of Christ, the Lord's encouragement to keep on. I think it also means, Michael, going back and reading Redemptoris Missio, John Paul II's great uh, encyclical on Christian mission, Yes. And those sections on those places, those sectors, those crevasses in society that only lay Catholics can get into. Right. Culture, politics, yeah. media. That's exactly right. The professions, the business world, all of that is mission territory. Yeah. All of that is mission territory. And, and you, you set it up perfectly here, but how was the, this idea of mission possibly misunderstood uh, since the Council. As we look forward, I mean, was the understanding within Catholics of a mission what you just described? Th this was a huge uh, misconstrual of the intention of John XXIII. Yeah. John XXIII said he summoned Vatican II because he wanted the Church to have an experience of a new Pentecost 
what did he mean by that? He didn't simply mean getting high in a spiritual sense. He, Pentecost leads to mission. What happens on the first Pentecost? 5,000 are converted. The mission of the church is launched. So the aggiornamento, the updating of the church, the resor small, the return to the church's sources is the roots of that, of that aggiornamento. All of that was aimed at mission, yes. but it got forgotten. Yeah. It got forgotten. And the notion of dialogue with the world was, was too constrained. Mm. Yeah. It was too constrained. Uh, dialogue for what? Dialogue ultimately so that we can offer people the possibility of friendship with Jesus Christ, incorporation into his body, the church, which we believe, as a matter of both revelation and reason, is the royal road to beatitude, right. to happiness, yeah, to human true. flourishing. So uh, that got a bit lost, even in the traditional mission training centers of the church, which were preparing young men and women to go out into mission territory understood in that National Geographic sense. Yeah. And when John Paul II became aware of this, uh, he said, I got to do something about this. I, I have to address this. And the central message of Redem Torres Missio in 1990 is the church does not have a mission, yeah. as if mission were one of two dozen things the church does. The church is a mission. Yeah. And everything and everyone in the church has to be measured by mission effectiveness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. I mean, that, that's a wonderful image. I mean, the church is, is a movement, a dynamism, a, a flow, a coursing of the Holy Spirit, you know, from alpha to beta, back to alpha. It, it's, it's outward, it's expansive. And, and the great symbol of this is the cross. Mm. I mean, Jesus' outstretched arms extend into the four winds. It's a sign of expansion. And then that lovely image you gave us last evening of the Bernini colonnade. You walk into St. Peter's Square and immediately you're enveloped by this maternal embrace. She welcomes everybody. Yes. Everybody on the planet ought to be baptized. Yeah, yeah. There's one, uh, I'll just I'll get Scott in here, but one other image that just popped into my head in Evelyn Waugh's wonderful little novel, Helena, yes. about the mother of Constantine. And he's bragging about all he's done to his mom. Uh, and he talks about having, ha having built this great wall to keep the barbarians out of the city. And she says, well, perhaps one day the wall could expand so that the city embraces the whole world. Right, mm -hmm. yes. And that, that was Waugh's fantastic image yeah. for this mission that we're, we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Well, you know, John Paul II is the key to reading Vatican II right. You know? And Vatican II is in continuity with Vatican I in every way. But there is one thing that Cardinal Dallas points out, you know, before he was called home, that evangelium occurs once in the documents of Vatican I, and then all of the derivatives from evangelize 206 times in the documents of Vatican II. There's certainly room for dialogue, interreligious dialogue, ecumenical dialogue, but there's also an even higher priority placed upon mission, witness, evangelizing. Mm -hmm. And when you see what John Paul is doing, especially in Mission of the Redeemer, I mean, that's been rightly called the Magna Carta of the new evangelization, and so it is. 
But you go back to Vatican II, and when you read Apostolicum Actuositatum, I mean, you see the Magna Carta for lay witness, for lay evangelizing, right. you know. And, and he had to clarify that, precisely as you explained in what was that document, uh, Christi Fidelis Leici, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, where most of that is just teasing out of Vatican II teaching right. what had been ignored, forgotten, or distorted. Yeah. Now, th this goes back to this problem of the forgetting. That's right. To what uh, Pope Benedict called, I believe, in his first Christmas address to the Roman Curia in 2005, the difference between what he called the Council of the Press Right. Yeah. In the Council of the Bishops. <laughs> that was a brilliant. To, to use oh. the horrible mm. word of the day, the narrative <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. was created during and immediately after the Council was this thing of dialogue, except it was a monologue. Mm. Dialogue's a two-way street. Yeah. Dialogue is a two-way street. And, and the reason for us engaging in that two-way street is certainly to hear what others are feeling and thinking and, and saying about the human condition, but it's also to offer something. Yes. It's, some, it's, it's also to offer something. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, what got, uh, that's what got lost. Scott is completely right that all of this is in Vatican II. But the Council of the Press yeah. created a kind it's of fog <laughs> about uh, Storyline. I don't yeah. know why we have right. a <laughs> storyline is fine enough. Yeah. But in, in the wake of the council, there was this unfortunate tendency to clericalize the laity. Yes. Yep. That's, that's Which is point. not the laity's distinctive role. Yeah. And that wonderful book by Russell Shaw, you know, To Hunt, uh, what, what, what was to it? Hunt to, to Shoot and to Entertain. And to entertain, yes. quoting <laughs> Monsignor Talbot, <laughs> who I think ended his days in a lunatic <laughs> asylum. But for him, in the 19th century, that's what lay people do. They Pray, hunt, pay, they entertain. That's what I yeah, mean. that's right. But there is a distinctive lay apostolate. There, there, there's another great quote <laughs> from that 19th century English milieu that produced, what are the laity for? They're to hunt, to shoot, and to entertain. Uh, the bishop, Olathorne of Birmingham, who, you know, imagined himself interested in big ideas, calls in Father John Henry Newman one day uh -huh. and says, tell me, Father, what are the laity for? Newman thinks and says, well, Your Grace, we would look rather silly without them. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one of the things that I love with uh, John Paul II and Christe Fidelis Leite, he talks about the, the two problems the church has had with, uh, when looking at the lady. One, that they don't have an integration of their faith in their life. And two, that there is a, a uh, disproportionate interest to be involved in the tasks and the business of the church rather than being in the world, in the culture, in the politics. And you, you touched on that. I mean, that's really our call as for laity is to really be out in the world, to be that, that powerful missionary yeah, presence. Leaven. Yes, leaven in the culture, the salt that's and That's the primary task. Now, it is also true, as I suggested a moment ago, that there are lots of things in the church that now occupy vast amounts of the time. Yeah. bishops and priests that could be done just as well by yeah. Yeah. Right. Just as well by To free them up to be the evangelists. Um, and then, you know, then it all works in a more evangelical way. But uh, I would like to see a lot more preaching in the church, particularly on Sundays, challenging those good people who are there every Sunday to take it up a notch or two right. and ask themselves between this Sunday and next Sunday, 
Yeah. What have I done to live out this evangelical vocation? Yeah. And it may be something as simple as an unexpected act of kindness, yeah. uh, a clear statement of principle in a difficult situation yeah. at work or in the family. Doesn't necessarily have to mean, you know, a direct pitch to someone. Right. Yeah. Right. It may yeah. it may be an act of compassion that opens up the question: How can you? be as good as that. Yeah. Uh, to which you say, as I said last night, because I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, can I tell you about that? Yeah, yeah. It can be as simple as that, but that's what we need to be challenging people to. And, we, and we need that within the church on all levels uh, to yes. really be challenging each other uh, to live that evangelical yeah. Catholicism. I just think about when I was in high school, which youth groups and youth ministry was kind of the fad or the beginning phases, I think, in the church back then. Um, but I remember each, each Friday night when we would get together, we'd go around and share. How did you share Jesus this week? Hmm. You know, there was, it, yeah. was a, it, was a, it was a sense of mission that I remember that I didn't find in any other churches. And there was one church among a dozen, but we chose the one that had this more clear evangelical Catholicism where actually it was an alum of uh, Franciscan that was leading it, but they went into the catechism, they went into scripture, and they went into how are you living your life as a disciple? You know, I think there's a distinctive form for lay evangelizing. You alluded earlier to the, the I think it was Pope Benedict who spoke of friendship with God. You know, and if that's the message, that ought to be the medium, you know, so that friendship, uh, sharing the joys of life with friends, you know, whether it's movie or you know, books or, or fine dining, or Christ, you know, where you can honestly say to somebody, you know, I, I'm a, I grew up Catholic, but I, I just took it for granted. I'm enjoying it now, you know. Yeah. And, and you might not get an opportunity to lead a Bible study at, the, at work, but at the same time, you might get asked out for lunch. And, you know, you know I grew up Catholic too. It doesn't mean anything to me. Well, why does it mean something to you? Mm -hmm. You know, friendship is the context, and not manipulating friendship, but really That's deploying right those kinds of experiences prayerfully, carefully, thoughtfully with friends. And you'll find, I think, in the process of sharing your faith in a, in a very natural way, supernatural fruits will come. One of the uh, many memorable lines in Mission of the Redeemer, Radum Torres Misio, is when John Paul II writes that the paradox of faith is that it increases the more you give it away. Right. Mm. Yeah. It's kind of defiance of all mathematical <laughs> or scientific logic, yeah. but the more you dispose of the gift you have been given That's right. in offering it to others, the deeper it grows in you. And I, I'm sure uh, Regis and Scott share this view in the, in the classroom. Uh, there, there's nothing more satisfying in my life than people who have come up to you and say, that book helped or that yeah. article helped right. uh, me to, yes. to really deepen uh, my relationship to the Lord or the experience of my summer program in Krakow. I mean, that's what really counts. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that's right. The, the public stuff and all that. That's, right. Well, it, uh, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a, an ancient intuition that love has to be diffusive of itself, and it's only genuinely itself when it's given away. That's right. and, and this is what God does. He lavishes himself upon us, and, and that's called Trinity. It's yes. called a world, which is the fruit of that, that love, that nuptial embrace of, of the other. And in the sexual uh, sphere, we call this a child. That's right. It, it has to radiate out. Yeah. yeah. Love, is, love is convicting that way. Stay with us for the last segment of Franciscan University Presents.
one of the most profound ways that I was evangelized personally was through the witness of my sister because she had such a profound prayer life and I could see that Christ had really changed her and that intrigued me and that made me want to learn more and that made me want to fall in love with Christ like she fell in love with Christ. In the Christian life, the instinct to evangelize comes out of our deeper awareness of what God has done for us in Christ. And from that awareness comes our joy and our courage to be able to speak about Jesus to others. I'm in the 4 plus 1 program here for counseling. It is very academically challenging, but the classes are a lot of fun. The teachers do love what they teach and they know their fields very well. If you're interested in mission, that's a big thing here. I did San Diego for two years. That was a youth ministry mission. There are a lot of opportunities here to be actively pro-life, praying outside the abortion clinic. There's a big group that goes to the March of Life here from campus. There's just so much you can do as far as faith goes. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. So we've been talking about evangelical Catholicism with our special guest, George Weigel. Uh, this is our final segment, Regis, so could you uh, lead us off? Yeah, I want to have to sort of tap dance uh, through this because uh, I agree with everything, but uh, the conversation could easily become a kind of love fest. <laughs> so let me raise or float a, a trial balloon, a, a, a quarrel, a disagreement, a, 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 a caveat. The title of the book, Evangelical Catholicism, there's a sense in which it doesn't add anything. It's sort of redundant, like, like a fifth wheel, because Catholicism is evangelical. And, and maybe that, is that a kind of uh, backward way of uh, telling broke Catholicism it's, it's, it's over? Your, your, your moment on the stage has passed and you need to retire into the wings. And I get it, I can see how a post-Tridentine model has sort of outlived its usefulness because the culture uh, has become Christophobic and we need to reach all the way back mm. beyond the Baroque, beyond the medieval. We have to sort of repristinate ourselves at the sources of authentic renewal, namely the person of Jesus Christ. But if you could maybe touch on that in your concluding remarks, that would be helpful. What does evangelical add to Catholicism that isn't already there? Hmm. Thank you, Regis. Scott? You know, we've used the word narrative, and I, I do agree it's a little worn out. Uh, I remember Robert Jensen, you know, pointing out that when people ask the question, what is the meaning of my life? They need to ask another question, that is, of what story is my life apart? And biblical literacy, I, to, to me, you use that phrase, and that's the first step on the path to that kind of deep conversion that would be true evangelical Catholicism. You know, and I, I think of this need that we have, not just to get biblically literate for chapters and verses, but to get the story. You know, not just the story of what happened in Vatican II, to get that one right for a change, but to put that within the larger framework. You know, because at Vatican II, something else that happened was so significant, it went largely unnoticed, and that is the representative bishops of the church were drawn more from the third world than simply from Europe. And that was a breakthrough. I mean, it was the beginning. And, and now we're on the other side of that, and the church is spreading. It's exploding in many parts of the world where it never existed five centuries ago, or at any other point practically. 
And that's why I think we really are on the cusp of something. And we can come up with different labels and prognostications, but I think, you know, in five or six hundred years, all of, you know, everybody will be amazed at what actually happened and, mm. and the dramatic changes and how the Holy Spirit was behind this. But I can't help but think that this is exactly what it means to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and not just Europe, and not just North, Central, and South America. It's an exciting time, it's also scary, because we've got to recover a story that goes beyond just the counter-narratives in terms of after you know, the, the post-conciliar period. And I, and I do think that if we recognize that this is salvation history, that that's not just a, a chapter, or that's not just a, a, a way of thinking of history, it is the proper mode of understanding the divine purpose in history. Uh, we're gonna see ourselves, no matter how small, as being part of a very big and beautiful mission. Mm, thank you, Scott. George. Regis, evangelical adds nothing to Catholicism <laughs> at Franciscan University. <laughs> this whole enterprise for the past several decades has been the embodiment, one embodiment, of the new evangelization. But it does remind the rest of the church, which hasn't had the Steubenville experience, that this is what we are for. We are not here to maintain an institution. Yeah. We're not here on an alternative weekend recreational activity. Mm. We're not here because grandma did this in Poland 120 yep. years ago. We're here because we're disciples of Jesus Christ who come to be fed by his body and blood in order to share his friendship with others. I mean, that, that's what that word, yeah. Yeah. which shocks a lot of North American Catholic sensibilities and Latin American. I mean, I had this very deliberately in mind to send some shockwaves in the, in the Spanish translation uh, in Latin America. Uh, that's an important thing for that part of the world church to grasp. They're going to understand it perfectly in Africa and South Korea and the growing places that, that Scott is talking about. Let me just uh, go back to the story. What, what story are you inside? One of the things that this way of being Catholic does is it reminds us that world history, properly understood, is not organized under the chapter headings, ancient civilizations, Greece and Rome, the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, Renaissance and Reformation, the Age of Science, the Age of Revolution, the Space Age. That's true, but that's the surface. Yeah. The real stories chapter headings are creation, fall, promise, prophecy, incarnation, redemption, sanctification, the kingdom of God. What we have to do is remind the world, or sometimes propose to the world, those are not running on parallel tracks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The story with those biblical headings is running inside the story with the surface headings. Mm. It's the true story. It's the human story read against its most ample horizon and at its deepest level. Mm. That's what we're proposing. That's what we're proposing. And if we do that compellingly, both by witness and by word, in this increasingly isolated, lonely, cranky, unhappy world, we have the possibility that was presented on the first Pentecost of exploding 
the church yeah. into the 21st century and beyond. Oh, that is great. Thank you, George. Thanks for being with us. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's program on evangelical Catholicism, uh, you can visit our website, faithandreason.com, for a great handout, an article on evangelical Catholicism that George wrote on the church's future that began in 1878. Great, great article with a lot of, of insights for you. You can get it on Faith and Reason or just by, uh, by calling us. Um, as we have heard, there's a mission bell uh, that's ringing for all of us right now. Lay, cleric, anyone within the church, uh, that we have a call to go out. And before we go out, though, we need to make sure that we have experienced the encounter with Christ. Uh, because we can't talk about somebody we don't know. We can't talk about the truth that hasn't changed our lives. And so if, if this is a moment for you to get into the Word, into the sacraments, uh, to build up your Catholic life, uh, to take this moment and breathe new life. Maybe you've had that passed on just by, by birth uh, in your family, that you were baptized as a normal course of things. Maybe uh, members of your family, that's what their experience has been. Uh, this is an opportunity for you to say, let's, let's start something new because the Holy Fathers and the days gone by wanted a new Pentecost to bring this new evangelization and you need that in your own life. So first, encounter Christ. Take time for Him in prayer and in sacraments and reading scripture. Um, second, we need to go out and we need to be in our workplaces, at the water coolers, uh, whether it be in our families, to get involved in the messy things of our friends' uh, lives. And, and third, I, I, I propose a, a great model for reform in the church is St. Francis, our patron here at Franciscan University. Uh, he was a reformer through holiness, uh, and this is the opportunity we really need to, uh, to be and a witness, a radical witness of disciples in this world. Uh, thanks again for watching Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this show again springs forth from the very mission of Franciscan University, which is trying to send forth disciples and mission into all the areas of our life. I want to invite you to be a part of that mission, possibly by coming here to take classes online or, or here on our campus, to be a part of our, our conferences, our, our pilgrimages, uh, or by just going and being equipped on faithandreason.com. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381, or call 740 Two eight three six three five seven.